This is Victoria, producer for The Felon File, a podcast on law enforcement history, issues, and incidents in the Appalachian Mountains of the United States and beyond. Listen to in 39 countries around the world. Scott Lunsford hosts The Felon File. Scott is a retired American police sergeant. Background and intro music through purpleplanet.com. Hello and welcome back to another Shade of Blue story here on The Felon File, where we look at, as Victoria said, crimes, court cases, law enforcement issues, things of interest, historic-wise, and the like, that happen in the Appalachian Mountains and beyond there. And once more, we're going to go a little bit beyond, a little little bit northwest of where we're at right now here in the Appalachian Mountains of Madison County, North Carolina. With the political season getting ready to start up, I was doing some research on some other topics and came across an interesting story and that's caused me to do some more research. Uh, Since the United States Congress was established in 1789, 15 of its members have been killed while in office, and 14 have suffered serious injuries from various types of attacks. The members of Congress were either injured or killed by somebody intending serious harm against them, or there is some evidence of a lethal intent by an unknown assailant. An example of this would be the two congressmen who died of what was called the National Hotel Disease. This is an incident where several people staying at the National Hotel in Washington, D.C. in 1857 died of what became known as the National Hotel Disease. It's disputed really though whether the disease was due to a deliberate poisoning or just accidental food poisoning and an improper cooking and and or bad hygiene and taking care of the... At that time, 1857, just like today, they had their conspiracy theorist. And the conspiracy theorist of the time of 1857 felt that the poisoning had something to do with the anti-slavery movement and the upcoming Civil War at the time. It was never said really or proved one way or the other if it was accidental or intentional, other than the fact that the two congressmen did pass away while they were serving in office. Now, the first member of Congress to be killed or wounded in office was Henry Conway. He was killed in a duel while in office in 1827. And our most recent death of a congressman occurred in 1983 when Korean Airlines Flight 007 carrying Larry McDonald was shot down over the Pacific Ocean by Russian aircraft. All of the 15 congressmen that were killed in office were male, and 10 were Democrats, 4 were Republicans, and 1 was kind of a Democratic-Republican mix, 
according to the do- some of the documents I've got. Four members died in duels, and a total of ten, three senators and six members of the House representatives in one territory, died from gunshot wounds. Fourteen Congress members have been wounded while in office. Six of them wounded were Republicans, and six were Democrats, and one each member of the anti-Jackson party and the Whig party. Two were women and four were senators. Five of those injured were wounded during the United States Capitol shooting incident. Not long after the poison death and the death of the two representatives, Senator David Broderick in 1859 was killed. Broderick had established a record that remains unbroken to this day. He became the only sitting senator to die in a duel. Broderick was born in Washington, D.C. in 1820, the son of a stonemason who had actually helped build the Capitol building. His family later moved to New York City where Broderick worked as a stonemason himself and a saloon keeper. He read constantly and became a very shrewd student of human nature. And he was able to observe the political culture of New York City at the time and was very intrigued by it. He was an anti-slavery Democrat in search of a political future and joined the 1849 gold rush to California, where he settled in San Francisco, where he quickly made a fortune working in real estate. As the man said, if if there's going to be a gold rush, it's best to be the man selling the places to stay, the shovels and the maps, than it is sometimes to be in the field looking for the gold. Elected to the California State Senate, he rapidly became a power broker within the Democratic Party and their anti-slavery wing and set his eyes on his seat in the U.S. Senate. He used his power in the legislature to stall for nearly two years a vote on the re-election of Senator William Gowan, a member of the Democratic Party's pro-slavery fraction. Finally, in 1857, California's other Senate seat opened and Broderick was able to negotiate a deal. And under this deal, Broderick would take that seat's full six-year term. Now, in 1859, as was happening in most states at that time, the political and election contest deepened and the antagonism between the pro-slavery group and the anti-slavery groups on both sides of the aisle during uh, became very very serious during the campaign in california chief justice david terry who was an ally of senator gowan denounced broderick as no longer a true democrat in the chief justice's opinion Broderick was following the, quote, wrong Douglas. He had abandoned Democratic Party leader Stephen Douglas in favor of the black Republican leader Frederick Douglas. Well, Broderick got very upset about this and responded that California Chief Justice was a dishonest judge and basically, quote, a miserable wretch. Now, for those words... Uh, Terry, the 
Terry, the Chief Justice, challenged Broderick to a duel. The men met early in the morning of September 13th, south of San Francisco, after Broderick's pistol discharged prematurely before he had a chance to even sight it. Uh, the judge coolly aimed and fired into Broderick's chest. The senator's death came three days later and endowed a rough-and-tumble political operator with a martyr's crown and accelerated the Civil War. Terry was acquitted of the crime and went on to serve in the Confederacy and in the Confederate Army until he was actually gunned down later after making a verbal threat on the life of Superior Court Justice Stephen Field. Now, I was discussing this research project in some of my previously posted Shade of Blue stories with some local college students at Marshall College here in North Carolina when I spoke of the U.S. Capitol shooting incident. They all assumed I was speaking about the most recent incident that occurred at the Federal Capitol building. And they were surprised when I told them that, no, I was speaking of the incident in 1954. At first doubtful, kind of accusing me of making it all up until one of them pulled out her cell phone and brought it up and, oh, goodness, there it was. And I was right. Our history is there. You just have to take time to look for it and pay attention to it. The 1954 United States Capitol shooting uh, happened on March 1st. It was done by four Puerto Rican nationalists. Their goal was simple. It was to promote the cause of Puerto Rico's independence from U.S. rule and governing. A total of 30 rounds from semi-automatic pistols were fired onto the legislative floor from the ladies' gallery, the balcony where visitors can go and watch, of the House of Representatives chamber while they were within the United States Capitol. The Nationalists first unfurled a Puerto Rican flag and then opened fire at the representatives of the 83rd Congress who were debating an immigration bill. Five representatives were wounded, one seriously, but they, they did all recover. The assailants were arrested. They were tried in two federal courts and convicted. All received long consecutive sentences amounting to life in prison and would still be there except in 1978 and 1979 their sentences were commuted by President Jimmy Carter and all four of them returned to Puerto Rico. Another incident that occurred very recently Representative Angel Don Craig. Craig was physically held hostage and assaulted in the elevator of her apartment building in Washington, D.C. this year, February 9th, 2023. She defended herself from her attacker, a Mr. Hamline. She did sustain several cuts and bruising, and she made this statement, quote, I got attacked by someone who the District of Columbia has not prosecuted fully over the course of almost a decade. Over the course of 12 assaults before mine that morning. 
So I think we have to, to think about how in the world can we make sure that we are not just letting criminals out. I mean, it wasn't even in every instance that he got 10 days or 30 days. Many times the charges were completely dropped before any justice was achieved at all. I was assault number 13 on his record, and I'm going to do everything in my power to make sure there's not a 14, 15, or 20. If you throw somebody in jail for 10 days and think, well, there's your punishment, and we're going to just let you right back out on the street, what the hell do you think's going to happen? Unquote. There are a lot of people today saying exactly the same thing. This echoes recent incidents that have occurred in New York City, Los Angeles, Chicago, San Francisco, even here in Western North Carolina in the city of Asheville. I think it really needs to be taken a very solid look at. Of course, there's also Gabby Gifford who was shot in the head during the 2011 Tucson, Arizona shooting that occurred at a contingency meeting being held in a parking lot in Arizona. Now, one of the more unfortunate incidents in Shade of Blue stories involving the death of a congressman occurred in 1867, and we're going to tie this in with some of the things that are happening today. The Honorable Cornelius S. Hamilton was the congressional representative of the 8th District of Ohio. He went to school in Ohio, was born there, he attended Denson University in Ohio and moved with his parents as he was growing up to Union County, Ohio in 1839, where he took up farming along with his father. Now, when he became old enough and continuing school, he studied law and was admitted to the bar in 1845 and opened a law practice in Maryville, Ohio. He acted as a land appraiser and an assessor and in 1845, which he, he also served as a, a delegate to the state constitutional convention. He was editor and owner of a local newspaper, the Maryville Tribune News. He held it for several years before he sold it. He served as a member of the state senate in 1856 and 1857 and was appointed by President Abraham Lincoln as assessor of the congressional districts in Ohio. The man worked very hard for his state and his country, not to mention his own community. Hamilton was elected as a Republican to the 14th Congress in March of 1867. The congressman had an 18-year-old son at the time, as well as some other children. And according to records, his son Thomas did very well in school and was thought that Eventually, he was going to be following in his father's footsteps. It was soon after the congressman was elected, and having spent a lot of time in Washington, D.C., that things started to change, things started to happen. Thomas became somewhat melancholic. His attitude changed, and he stopped following his regular, enjoyable pursuits. It became so obvious and serious that one of Thomas's teachers took the young man to see a doctor in Columbus, Ohio. 
and the doctor was actually his uncle, J.W. Hamilton. After meeting with his nephew and examining him, Dr. Hamilton advised his brother and the teacher to watch Thomas closely. There was something going on. 18-year-old Thomas Hamilton had been experiencing some mental problems, what the newspapers called mild insanity, such as only would be readily detected by medical men. That's a direct quote from one of the newspaper articles. In December of 1867, the congressman received word that his son Thomas was in a very bad way, so the congressman left Washington, D.C. to go home. Thomas's condition had continued to get worse, and in the company of a friend, he was en route to a mental health asylum, or asylum, in Columbus, Ohio, and knowing that the destination, Cornelius was able to intercept them on his way from Washington, D.C., before they reached their destination. And after some discussion, Cornelius decided to take his son back home. But Thomas's mental state after they returned home still continued to deteriorate. In one of his more rational moments, he told his father to watch him very closely because he f- was afraid he was going to take his own life. On Saturday, December 21st, Thomas set fire to a big pile of cash and other important documents said to be valued at about $6,000. He also started doing other acts which left no doubt of his insanity. Well, reluctantly, his father decided to take Thomas to the asylum the following Monday. That Sunday morning, before everyone got up, Cornelius wrote a letter to the Ohio Congressional Delegation explaining why he was absent and was going to be absent, including this uh, section itself where he wrote, As I have above named the cause of my being at home, it is proper that I should be a little more explicit. My wife wrote me that my eldest boy Tom, 18 years old, was threatened with insanity. I found on my arrival that her fears had a real foundation, but I hoped that it would be but a temporary trouble until yesterday when his conduct was such that I was despaired of managing the case at home at a private well care location, and I have made arrangements to take him to the asylum at Columbus, Ohio. He has been one of the most quiet industrious and exemplary boys I ever knew. Reliance for the management of my affairs and the control of my other children in my absence. Later that morning, after sealing the letter, after addressing and sealing the letter, later that morning, Cornelius went to feed the horses there on the farm. Thomas went with him as well as his other son, 15-year-old John. Now, being Sunday, after they got through with most of the chores, the father told the 15-year-old boy John to go and get ready for Sunday school to accompany his mother and his siblings to church. After John walked away and out of sight, Cornelius stooped down to pick up something from the ground. 
That's when Thomas hit him in the back of the head with a two-inch thick fence post, fracturing his skull and killing him almost instantaneously. Thomas covered the body with shucks of corn and feed. Thomas picked up an axe and went on back to the house. Later investigation showed there were no marks or scrapes on the ground that would indicate any type of struggle had taken place and it's quite likely that the first blow was the fatal blow. With the idea of dispatching the remainder of his family, he went back to the house. On arriving at the porch, his mother came out of the house and seeing something was amiss or unusual in his appearance and his manner. Mother cried out, according to John, Thomas, you haven't killed your father, have you? And Thomas replied, oh, I reckon not, that he seized up a hold of an axe and went after his mother. About this time, John, the younger brother, reappeared and diverted Thomas's attention. Thomas retraced his steps and took after Johnny, uh, the later running into the dining room and then back out of the house with his older brother in pursuit, swinging an axe. Johnny ended up receiving a very serious wound to his shoulder when his brother made contact with the axe in one of his wild swings. Before the blow could be repeated, John ran back outside the house and into the direction of one of the neighbor's house, a Mr. Woods. Thomas still following him, swinging the axe. Before he had gone too far, however, his attention was again distracted, this time by the shrieks and cries of his mother and his still younger brother, who were still there at the house. Thomas then took out after them and ran to them and ran after them. Mother and children ran to one of the other neighbor's houses and it was from this last house that Thomas was subdued by two of the neighbors who were able to get the axe away and secure Thomas before he could harm anyone else. Local police were called and Thomas was taken to jail and held there pending an investigation and coroner's report. Grand jury determined that Thomas was mentally unbalanced and therefore did not stand trial and he was committed to the same asylum in Ohio that he had been originally that the family had originally planned to take him to. After almost a year in a facility Thomas began writing his family and his friends back home. This was actually noted in the Maryville newspaper where they wished him a speedy recovery. Five years later, after the death of his father and his involvement, Thomas and Nancy E. Vance were married in 1872. Thomas continued working on the farm and by all appearances, no other episodes occurred. 
His marriage went very well, apparently. He had several children and several great children, or several grandchildren, and one great grandchild before he passed away in 1917 at the age of 68 in Union County, Ohio. It's a sad situation, one reminiscent of what's going on in the world today. We spoke of earlier the incident that occurred on the subway in New York City. The gentleman that ended up dying on the subway was known to have uh, mental health issues. And in the world we're living in today, there's a lot of individuals out and about today that are facing similar mental health circumstances. And perhaps we as a society ought to take a look at that. But the question comes up, how do we balance the security and safety of our society with helping with helping individuals that are having a hard time fitting in that have other issues going on I hope somebody comes up with a good idea we really could use one well that's our shade of blue story for this week we hope you come back for another shade of blue story and if you like be sure to go back and look at some of our previous stories they're all available on spotify and apple tunes and on the apple podcast platform be happy to hear from you too you can reach us at felonfile at gmail.com or touch base with us at scottlunsfordauthor.com or felonfile.com we'd love to hear from you And in the meantime, remember, we all have a place in the world. If you have the opportunity, help somebody out if you can. It's really the right thing to do, and if more people did it, I don't know, perhaps the world would be a better place. Y'all be safe, be secure, and we'll talk to you later. Bye, y'all. Victoria, you got the controls again. This has been The Felon File, a discussion on law enforcement, history, issues, and incidents in the Appalachian Mountains and other parts of the world. For more information, you can go to felonfile.com or scottlunsfordauthor.com. Here you can find links to Scott and Num books and other information. You can also email us at felonfile at gmail.com. There are also t-shirts and mugs available. You can also buy us a cup of coffee or help purchase some of the research material and expenses it takes to do felon file. Click on the coffee image on the web page to do so. This is Victoria your producer thank you for listening. Have a good one.